Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Rebecca Solnit. There is a shorter produced version of this, as always, wherever you found this podcast. I usually say, "'Twas brillig in the slithy toes did gyre and gimble in the wave," but I suppose Peter Pip, Peter Piper also picked that. Um, what was <laughs> the, it? So the thing is, don't look at me because then you're talking directly into the mic. Look at that chair opposite you. Okay. Talk it actually does a, a lot of difference. Okay. How's that? Twas brillig. Repeat after me. Try this. Uh, people in places of power. People in places of power pontificate ponderously. But if you see, if you emphasize it, it's going to get it. But you sound fine, at least to me. I'm sure they hear you at the other end of this. Uh, hi, Rebecca. Okay. Hello. Hi, is that Krista? Yes, it is. Yeah. Good morning or good, afternoon. Good wherever. Morning. Where are you? Yeah. Uh, uh, we're in Minnesota. Where th- okay. Where there's a very significant snow snowfall outside. <laughs> you probably don't have that in San Francisco. <laughs> No, but we would be very excited if we did <laughs> and freaked out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We we think weather is when the thermometer strays a few degrees from room temperature. I, I would say Californians have this weather superiority complex. You know, it's funny. I read a poem by somebody who moved back to the Midwest about how, like, we don't know anything about frozen ponds. The snowiest place in the U.S., some people say, is uh, Donner Pass. And so, like, we have lots of snow. We just are about four hours downhill from it. (laughs) That's right. And parts of California are, you know, cold and snowy and blizzardy and... Uh, have fantastic icicles, but not this part. Yeah, I so, agree. So there, there is a possibility of character building happening in California. Too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my so God! That eastern calumny, that eastern <laughs> calumny that we have no moral fiber <laughs> because right. you can go out in a t-shirt and a jacket every day of the year. That's right. <laughs> well, I'll just say before we begin, I I think you have lots of character based on your writing. I- <laughs> I think somehow you've survived. Um, I, you know, before we start, um, let me just ask, Chris, do do you even need some more levels at all? Are we okay? Yeah. Do you have any questions for me before we begin? No. At um, I'm looking forward to whatever adventure you lead me on. Good. Okay. Great. Well, as you know, I well, as you may know, I I like to. I like to talk at the intersection of big ideas and human experience and, you know, what we think and also who we are and how we live. And one thing, I mean, your writing is so beautiful and lush and you, it's large ideas and rich prose. And I notice when I'm, as I, as I steep into you that, you know, people often tend to engage you at this very cerebral level. And... Um, so I'm just kind of giving you, you know, I want to kind of, I, I want that cerebral well, that, and, and the beauty, but also the grounding. So does that make sense? That's some, that does make sense. Okay. And you're right, you know, because I read about politics, I get treated like just another pundit. But there is this constant attempt to kind of connect the political and the personal, this yes. kind of deep interior life with public life. That's it. But And you do that in your writing and somehow... I, I think it may be a little scary to, because you're right. It's not just the personal; it's the deep interior. So, but 
let's tr- let's go there. <laughs> um, okay, I think it's also that people yeah. don't know how to inhabit that space or how to connect those places, so they respond yeah. to it as readers. But the people, most of the people who engage me directly, like they don't have that framework, which is part of why I'm trying to, you know, as fast as I can shovel, provide it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, I. I usually start my conversations with an inquiry about the spiritual background of your childhood and however you would define that. And, you know, as I look at the sweep of your writing, um, I see so many elements that, that to me are profoundly spiritual, a long sense of time or a robust commitment to hope. Um you you know you describe your childhood in in so many ways. I mean you know in one place you you know these are words you use a scrawny battered little kid in a violent house. And I I wonder how you would think about that notion of the spiritual background of your childhood. And it, it occurs to me that perhaps you know perhaps some of these things are were seeded by absence um, as much as by presence. I think that's true. And when you ask that question, what comes to mind is kind of a map of where most of my childhood took place. I wrote somewhere that I had an inside-out childhood because every place was safe but home. Yeah. If you went just just on the other side of the backyard fence was a quarter-horse stud farm and then dairy farms in open space. And the landscape and the animals, domestic and wild, were this huge refuge and really fed me and encouraged me. And there was a sense of community with the non-human. And so that was if you went north, even, you know, just to the other side of the fence and beyond, just endless open space and oak trees and grasslands and wildlife. Mm -hmm. And then if you went south, there was a really great public library. And the minute I learned how to read, it was as though I'd been given this huge treasure. Every book was a box I suddenly knew how to open, and in it I could meet people go to other worlds, go deep in all kinds of ways. And I spent my childhood, you know, in the hills and in the books. And those, so that was not maybe what people think of conventionally as spirituality, but they, you know, that was my company, my encouragement, my teaching, uh, my community. Mm, that's lovely. Um, yeah, yeah, wonderful. Um, I... I think <laughs> I think libraries are some of the most kind of joyful, serene places. I mean, we don't think about them that way, and I don't know how that's changing. But like, you go in and you walk out. You there are treasures for free. Yeah, I often say that if you walked up to people on the street and said, what if we held our most beautiful, valuable, precious treasures in common, and let people just take them away? with no security and promise yeah, right. to bring them back. People would say, on the one hand, that's a communist plot, We, and on the other hand, it would never work. But the public library system, which, like my friend Bob Dawson, the photographer, has really been celebrating, is one of the great miracles of this country and yeah. sometimes feels like the last democratic space left that invites everyone in and gives them access to the everything that is books and now the online world, as people use them that way. Yeah. So, you know, the sweep of your work is um, wonderful and it's daunting um, as an interviewer. And so, but and there's so much I 
I, I do feel like you are a kindred kindred spirit in, in 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 some of the big themes that you touch on again and again and develop. And so, so I'm I'm going to kind of focus in on some of those. And you know, I, and this is all by way of saying that there's so much we won't touch that you've written about and thought about. But um, I actually thought I would start with. Um, I just love to have a conversation with you about this piece that was in Harper's. Um, not that long ago, um, about I, I can't remember the title of it, but it was, you know, it, it was ostensibly about why about the choice not to have children. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> the mother, you, it's called the mother of all questions. The mother of all questions, um, and uh, and you know, part of of what you were reflecting on, or or a jumping off point for your reflection, was was the fact that people are so curious about that, and and. In fact, so presumptuous about it, um, and and you know, I think you make the case very quickly um, that it's a, a valid and life giving choice not to have children. But but in fact, the piece, like so much of you do of what you write, becomes a reflection on kind of the vast expanse of what it what it is to be alive. And so, I want to just read um, some of my favorite passages from that, and just kind of have a conversation with you about it. Does that sound okay? That sounds great. All right. So um, so there's this. You know, you said people lock onto motherhood as a key to feminine identity in part from the belief that children are the best way to fulfill your capacity to love, even though the list of monstrous ice-hearted mothers is extensive. But there are so many things to love besides one's own, off- one's own offspring, so many things that need love, so much other work love has to do in the world. Um, I, I think so much about this, about with, that we use that essential word love in such a narrow way um, in our public life. And you've said it so, so beautifully there. I feel like something I'm constantly trying to open up for myself first and everybody else, I hope, is just how big we can be. I feel like so much this culture defines us as private consumers whose only joys and satisfactions come from material goods and the kind of stuff you talk about in therapy, kind of sex and family. And I feel like we have souls and we are citizens, that there's this public life engaged with a broader community, with ideals and the future with history that's part of who we are and then the soul is something that connects in these deeper ways that go go beyond sometimes I think of it as a horizontal and vertical axis and we get so reduced mm. by this definition of who we are in which we're just you know consumers who whole whole life takes place inside the family home and you know what that's not that's not who we are and, you know, it's something I wrote about in my book on disaster, where suddenly right. people got thrown into this chaos, but also into community and found often profound meaning and fulfillment in a very surprising way in the midst of death and horror and ruin. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's really about just, you know, it's and the piece is not in any way like, oh, people who don't have kids are better than people who do, or motherhood is a dead end or something. Because, you know, mothers get shafted, too, by the way they're defined and limited and told that they're if you do this, you can't do that, and just yeah. by the, the intrusiveness woman face. So it's not either or. It's just wanting us to 
ask better questions about what we want of life, maybe better questions than happiness, because happiness is kind of a, a fool's errand. And for me, it's like a fleeting condition that, you know, and it's kind of the rabbit the dog never catches in some ways, but we're always being encouraged to chase. And it's like, can we ask other questions about what makes our lives rewarding? Can we ask, does it have meaning? Does it have connection? Does it have purpose? Does it have dignity? Can we just, you know, and so that's really, yeah, it started, this is a piece, the mother of all questions. It started with the questions women get asked that are really reductive that say like, oh, you're a biological unit with yeah. a foregone destiny and you're either fulfilling or not fulfilling that destiny and everyone who fulfills that destiny is happy except that when you look around you know which you can do for about a millisecond you can see lots of people who have spouses and children and material goods who are not rapturously blissed out at all times (laughs) you know and it's like the dumbest dumbest, it's like the dumbest thing in the whole world to even say that and yet we're constantly told like this is the recipe for happiness you have to pursue it yeah and if you don't, and it, you know, and some of the happiest people I know are celibate uh, priests, monks, well, abbesses. right. And I mean, it's as much a recipe for complexity as anything we do, right? Which which may have happiness in it, along with a lot of other things. But I mean, also, I think you know this larger point you make that 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 we that we limit the capacity to love, really, to eros and and to family. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. And you say, you know, I love this phrase. There's so much other work love has to do in the world. I just feel like that's so worth just putting out in public life and reflecting on. Yeah, and it's it's partly you know we kind of over overemphasize this very specific zone of love. It's as though we've we've sort of hyper mapped it and obsessed about it and mm-hmm. shown lights on it and things. And then there's this whole other territory of relationships to, you know, to the larger world in particular and to public life to, you know, I hang out with a lot of climate activists and uh, there's this profound love they have for the natural world, for the yeah. future, for justice, and and that really shapes lives and gives them tremendous meaning and it benefits all of us that they have this and that this motivates them because they're acting on behalf of all of us. And we should call that love and we should yeah. look and at the way that... it's a passionate love, right? It's a passionate absolutely, love. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just, yeah. you know, it's ferocious and it's protective yes. the way that mother love can be. Yeah. And if anything's going to save the planet, it's that love. And it's like, but mostly we don't even acknowledge that it exists. And so we have these blank spots on the map of who we are. Mm -hmm. And I want to try and fill those in and encourage people to go there to recognize that actually their lives can take place or are already taking place there. And uh, that this will give them this bigger sense of self. Yeah. So so here's another, um, and this is follows nicely it's connected you know there's another passage uh, um, of your writing that I love from that piece we we talk about open questions but there are closed questions too questions to which there is only one right answer as least as, as at least as far as the interrogator interrogator is concerned one of my goals in life you write is to become truly rabbinical to be able to answer closed questions with open questions to have the internal authority to be a good gate gatekeeper when intruders approach and to at least remember to ask why are you asking that so 
So I, I want to just kind of take that, open that up, not take it apart, open it up. So, so f- I, I think, you know, I think we are right now talking about one of those, in, in fact, often closed questions in public life about where love takes place and what it is to be a woman. Um, but I wonder, just talk to me a little bit about in public life and economic life, you know, closed questions you see and open questions you, you want to submit that are on your mind you know, right clo- now, maybe. Oh, okay. Sorry to interrupt. Do you no, want to... No. Oh, that's okay. It. Yeah, the closed questions are questions in which there's only one right answer. And, you know, when this piece began, we rearranged it a little bit, but it really began with... In an utterly jet-lagged condition, I was on stage in front of hundreds of people being interviewed um, at the Hay on Wye Literary Festival in Britain. And the awful man, and I have written a book about hope, which is about exactly that kind of public life and larger loves. And And we're going to talk about the ways we imagine, good, uh, the ways we imagine history, et cetera. And so I come up on stage and... I'm not not at full strength because of the jet lag. And this guy just cross-examines me about why I don't have children. And I try and just brush it off and he won't he won't give up on it. It's like, and it's re, it's this interesting thing where, of course, it's not only a close question, but it's an attempt to punish and humiliate me for thinking that I'm a mind. It's saying you're not a mind; you're just a body. Well, so so it's, it's also behind that question is there's some idea that that you only have hope for the future if you give if you give birth to a next generation? I mean, I don't even understand the the connection he was making. Yeah, he wasn't bothering to make a connection. It's like, you're you're female, you're just a breeding unit, you failed to breed, therefore you're you're probably a failure Mm -hmm. and incomprehensible for not following the only destiny of meaning for you. And it's, you know, and when I describe it like that, you know, justifiable homicide comes to mind. (laughs) But... uh, Yeah, (laughs) you know, and it was really, really awful. But it was also, and it was this crazy thing where, you know, if I hadn't been socially conditioned to feel like, well, maybe I should be doing these things, I, I would have felt a little bit less, just browbeaten by it. So that's a classic closed question where Mm -hmm. it's like, I, you know, powerful social assumptions about what you're supposed to be, and uh, only one right answer, and you know, we've got you cornered. And the rabbinical thing as... Yeah, to be you truly know, rabbinical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there's all these rabbi jokes I love and just rabbi stories in general where you answer questions with questions. And I didn't really say the two things that I should have said, one of which is, why are you asking that? Um, when are we going to talk about my book? Or what my... I had this adorable publicist. She was in her 20s and wore lots of pink and fluffy angora things and it was very girly and when I got off stage steam was coming out of her ears and she gave me this steely-eyed glance and just said he would never say that to a man and that's actually what has gotten me away from some of those questions is when you remind people like uh, oh yeah this is gender in the worst possible way so you know but so but it is a larger question you know so that was a particularly nasty experience of it but there is this underlying assumption I have younger friends who are still being badgered by their families and uh, why are you going to have children yeah, why? Mm-hmm. when are you going to? You must. It's your own, you know, the mm-hmm. sense that there's only one destiny. And, do you know, and of course, there's innumerable destinies. And there's people who, 
they have so many kinds of deep and loving relationships that are not parent-child, and yeah. just as well as parent-child relationships that are not deep and loving, um, on which I'm also an expert. But, yeah. um, so, you know, so so it's just like, I just want people to be more imaginative about what, what shape a life can have. Women's lives, in particular, came up because I'm a woman and get browbeaten in the way women do, but for everybody. You know, and I think part of it is I grew up around gay culture and now people get to have same-sex marriages. But I grew up around people for whom all the assumptions about what dimensions a life would have, you know, weren't available to them in some ways and who built lives often that were joyous and deeply connected and meaningful and exuberant and courageous. And, you know, and that's a, that's also right, queer right. culture has been a really important part of my life just as a San Franciscan, even though, you know, I get involved with men. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so I want to ask you, and I want to make sure I understand this. So you say to have, to at least remember to ask in those moments, why are you asking that? And and you just you just refer to that as partly a way to distance it, it, it like a, t- a technique in a way to to pull your pull back into yourself and reassert your agency. But I also wondered if, you know. We're in this moment in public life where there's just so much anger in the room, you know, in the public room. And I, I think it, it becomes daunting, almost unthinkable to ask or to imagine asking, um, you know, why are you asking that in a, in a spirit of, of true curiosity? So I, I don't know. I, I wondered also if that that question yeah. is kind of a tool, a taproot of empathy or at least curiosity or at least civility. Um, yeah. What's well, also, this is not what I expected to say in an interview, but interviews are very asymmetrical, and the best ones, I say, are like waltzing with a really great lead dancer who makes you a better dancer than you were. <laughs> the worst the worst ones are a, are kind of like uh, forced interrogations. And why are you, and it's interesting because there's often an unspoken rule that, you know, you can ask me anything, I can't ask yeah, back. So right. even to ask back, I've listened to some really extraordinary interviews with, with Terry Gross where, for example, the rock star Nick Cave asked her a question back and she got flustered. And it's really about leveling the playing field in some way where it's like, oh, you want to interrogate my life? Let's interro- just interrogate your motives Yeah or your self-awareness for a second here. So I think it could actually be very disruptive. And it is something, as somebody who, you know, has a sort of default good girl side where it's like, oh, yeah, I don't have to obey. I can disrupt <laughs> right. yeah. when things go, you know, kind of off off kilter like that. And, I, you know, I'm still working on rabbinical, but I, I have had moments. I'm, the piece <laughs> ends with one of those moments that was actually really fun for me because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm on it for this one. Well, say, so just describe that. Oh, I was as, it's funny, all my worst interview moments are in Britain. Um, sorry, Britain, or, or maybe not, sorry. But um, I wasn't jet lagged for a change, which was very exciting. Uh, this was a few <laughs> years ago on the tour for The Far Away Nearby, a really personal book, which, you know, and I write about my suffering and not about how awesome parts of my life are, because it's like, you know, I'm not out to 
I don't think how awesome my parts of my life are is actually that useful for people or that interesting and that I'm not into gloating. Really? But, you know, but it's a, it's a book about suffering in a much larger sense than kind of what you do about it. And, and that's it's a about, book your, about mother, your mother's stories. Alzheimer's and it, but part, yeah. that's part of the suffering. Yeah. That's, that's a big piece yeah. of the suffering. Yeah, go on. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's about a lot of things, but mm-hmm. that's at the center of it, is that my, my mother forgetting her stories and the way stories can damn us as well as save us, the ways we need to become the storyteller of our lives. Mm-hmm. But so I'm on stage in this very, so far as I can tell, upper-class British woman with a very plummy accent, like her opening gambit is, so you've been wounded by humanity and have <laughs> fled to the landscape for refuge. <laughs> And she's basically saying, like, you're a total loser, aren't you, you pathetic specimen? <laughs> and and it's this thing where so much what this book is about, like, of course I have suffering. That's sort of the human condition. And my suffering is not special or exceptional. I'm not on death row. I'm not a Syrian refugee. You know, I'm... And... and you know, and I'm interested in it, but I don't think it makes me special or unusual. So this time is, you know, I just turned to the audience and said, have any, and having an American accent felt like it really helped the comedy here. I said, have any of you ever been wounded by humanity? And the whole audience cracked up. And I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm in control of this interview. We can go someplace here. And uh, and it was fine after that, but it was so funny, this kind of like, I'm going to cut you out of the herd with this closed question about how pathetic you are. And, uh, you know, I felt like I, sa- I salvaged that one. <laughs> it's, a, it's a crazy thing, you know. I'm a writer, which means I like to have a couple hours to a couple years to turn something around in my head, and I'm most articulate through my fingers in a room alone. Yeah. And the result of doing... Doing that has been that I've become this sort of public figure who has to extemporize all the time in public, which felt at first like a kind of punishment and then just became this completely separate skill I had to try and master or at least become competent at, you know, the speaking voice um, in the relationship to the audience when you're in rooms with people. It is really, it's a completely separate thing. I often say spoken and written are two different languages and most people are at home and spoken but not in written. And I'm kind of the other way around. And I had to get used to this crazy public life that descended upon me. Yeah. But but it's also fitting, I think, um, because you, you you have a passion for public life. You, 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 and, you know, a lot of the, the themes that run through your work, the things you care about... Um, are, I, I want to say they're kind of outliers in terms of what we, what we know how to talk about in public. Certainly in intellectual circles, right? And so, so maybe let's talk about hope because I think hope is one of those. Um, and, and sorry, go on. Did you want to? Uh, no, no. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I can talk about hope till I think the cows come home, but <laughs> well, uh, well, so, but you have a specific question. Well, no, I mean, I just yeah, I want to start. I mean, somewhere you write that your fascination with this, maybe you were, you began to articulate your fascination with this when you registered your emotions and the emotions of others in response to the 1989 earthquake in San Francisco. And and my sense is that that the, what you how you respond and how you saw others respond it was not perhaps what you would have expected. The amazing thing about the 1989 earthquake, which was a fairly benign one, it was an earthquake as big as the kind that 
killed thousands of people last year in Nepal and tens of thousands of people in places like Turkey and Mexico City and things like that. But partly because we have good infrastructure, about 50 people died, a number of people lost their homes, everybody was shaken up. But what was so interesting for me in the places where everything was disrupted, but very few people were um, devastated or killed was that people seemed to kind of love what was going on. And when I'd ask people, or when it would come up in conversation, because for years afterwards around here, people would be like, oh, where were you at 5.02, or is it 5.03 p.m. on October 17th, 1989? And people would get this expression that I later ran into when I visited um, Halifax, Nova Scotia after a big hurricane there when I talked, and then eventually I did a whole book on this mysterious emotion, people would light up. And like everything we've been told about disaster by trashy Hollywood disaster yeah. movies with Charlton Heston and Tom Cruise, everything about the news is that, you know, is that human beings are fragile, disasters are terrible, and we're either terrified because we're fragile or our morality is also fragile and we revert to our bestial, savage, social Darwinist, Hobbesian right. nature and go out raping and looting. Those myths became a secondary disaster worse than the hurricane that hit mm. New Orleans on August 29th, 2005, because that's why it was the city was shut off, turned into a prison city, why the police were shooting black people in the back why people were not allowed to evacuate and supplies were not uh, allowed in while people were dying of exposure and lack of medication and et cetera. And, um, you know, so that was part of where I got hopeful. And then also, in a larger sense, I was just talking about the faraway nearby. One of the things I'm really interested in is what are the stories we tell and what are their consequences and are there other ways of telling, other ways, other stories that don't get told? Yes, yes. And hopefulness is really, for me, is not like, is not optimism that everything's going to be fine and we can just sit back. And that's too much like pessimism, which is that everything's going to suck and we can just sit back. Hope for me just means that a Buddhist sense of uncertainty, of coming to terms with the fact that we don't know what will happen and that there's maybe room for us to intervene mm. and that we have to let go of the certainty people seem to love even love more than hope and, and know that we don't know what's going to happen. And we live in a very surprising world where nobody anticipated the way the Berlin Wall would fall, right. the Arab Spring would rise up, the impact of Occupy Wall Street. You know, nobody, and uh, you know, Obama was unelectable six months before he was elected. People, well, yeah, and you know, it strikes me also in in your writing about this that, um, you know, because what you describe happening to people, even just what happened to you, is not just that that hope unexpected, but that there's a that there's a so there's a joy, actually, not just virtue that people do virtuous things that may not make the news. Um, but but I wonder, as you just described that just then, I mean, what you said, you know, in those moments of disaster, of crisis, um, we, 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 we come face to face with the reality that, that unexpected things will happen. Um, um, as you said, that life is surprising in good ways and bad. That's just true. 
but but is there is there something life-giving, even energizing, about people actually having to face those bedrock realities in those moments? And sometimes there is. And we spend a lot of our lives being miserable about things that are either over or haven't happened. Yeah. You know, it's that. And so we're not really in the present and we're worried about our pension plan or, you know, sulking about the fact that, you know, our mother didn't love us 40 years ago or something. You know, like we spend all this time. All the things that can go wrong that we worry about all the time. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And there's a way a disaster throws people into the present and sort of gives them this super saturated immediacy. Yeah. That also includes a deep sense of connection. It's as though. In some violent gift, you've been given a kind of spiritual awakening where you're close to mortality in a way that makes you feel more alive. You're deeply in the present and can let go of past and future and your personal narrative in some ways. You mm. have sh- shared an experience with everyone around you and you often find very direct but also metaphysical senses of connection to the people you suddenly have something in common with. And then oftentimes the people who do the really important work in disasters, um, which doesn't get talked about much, are the neighbors. Who's going to rescue you when your building collapses, right. yeah. when, the, when the ice storm comes and the power goes out? It's probably going to be the neighbors. People also find the meaningful work and the sense of purpose that they don't get making widgets in the widget factory, you know, or shuffling papers in their bureaucracy. And so that they get all these, they get all these things, and it. And this is not to say that disasters are good things, but the you know disasters are terrible things. First of all, people die. There's terrible loss yeah. and injury. People are orphaned and widowed and injured and uh, impoverished. But people do often find these other things, and so the question is really like two things. One is. How can we get there without going through a disaster? And that's, that's right. That's the question, isn't it? And I think yeah. of that as kind of like, it's like this funny way, like the the earthquake shakes you awake. And then that's sort of the the big spiritual question. How do you stay mm-hmm. awake? How do you stay in that deeper consciousness of, you know, that present mindedness, that sense of non-separation and compassion and engagement and courage, which is also a big part of it, and generosity. People are yeah. not selfish and greedy. And well, then, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, and then the other question is why has everything we've ever been told about human nature misled us about what happens in these moments? And what happens if we acknowledge, as I think people in the kind of work that neuropsychologists and the Dalai Lama's research projects and economists and everybody else are beginning to say, like, what if human everything we've been told about human nature is wrong and we're actually very generous, communitarian, altruistic beings who are distorted by the system we're in but not made happy by it? What if we can actually be better people in a better world? You know... A story I have always loved that to me, you know, Dorothy Day, I just feel like gets quoted all the time more and more. I mean, some, she's somehow she's really come to the forefront of of consciousness. But, you know, to me, the 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 moment that that I think about all the time is this question she posed. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe you could call this an open what a, what an open question to a closed question. You know, standing there, and you do write about in your book, A Paradise Built in Hell, which I love so much. 
you know, you write about the San Francisco earthquake of April 18th, 1906, um, and which killed 3,000 people and annihilated the center of the city, as you say, and, and shattered this 100-mile stretch. But Dorothy Day was in Oakland. She's eight years old. She watches this thing that in some place you describe as, you know, you say, yes, people fall apart, but in disaster, there's also this falling together that we don't chronicle. And she, the question she asked was, you know, she saw, to me, this is me looking at this, she saw that people were capable of this, that all along they knew how to do this, right? Um, to take care exactly. of each other. And she said, yeah. why, can't we, why can't we live this way all the time? No, that is her formative experience. She mm-hmm. said, while the disaster lasted, people loved one another. And so she, and it's, and Dorothy Day is such a key figure for that book, both because the earthquake becomes a spiritual awakening and kind of the template for what she pursues in her life. And because she's somebody who had a, a partner and a child and, you know, she kept the child, but she gave up family life for this larger sense of community she pursued mm. as the founder of Catholic Worker, you know, and she treated poverty as the disaster in which she would create this kind of communitas, this deeper, broader, higher, more spiritual sense of community than private life had offered her. And and she's so interesting as somebody who renounces it directly and connects this other sense so directly to disaster. Yeah, and and you know, you talk about um, in all the places you looked, and in your own circle, as you've as you were in that disaster, and you've been there's 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 virtue that arises, and that there's a joy, there's a hope and a joy. And I was thinking about that phrase of hers, the duty of delight, right? So it's not so. Yes, there's she makes sacrifices that that seem <clears throat> that wouldn't that would seem extreme in the context of most of our lives but 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 that joy was also something she claimed and hung on to joy is such an interesting term because we hear constantly about happiness are you happy yeah. and it's you know emotions are mutable and this notion that happiness should be a steady state seems destined to make people miserable. <laughs> and joy is so much more interesting because I think we're much more aware that, you know, it's like it's like the light at sunrise or the lightning or something, that it's epiphanies and moments and raptures and that it's not supposed to be a steady state and that's okay. And it's I, I think yeah. it's a word that comes up a lot more in spiritual life than happiness that that millstone happiness yeah you you draw a connection um often between i would say the reasonableness of hope and the reality of darkness would you would you would you say something about that well i really want to rescue darkness from the pejoratives because it's also associated with dark-skinned people and those pejoratives often become racial in ways that i find problematic. Yeah. And for, so I wrote a book called Hope in the Dark about hope, where, the, where that darkness was the future, you know, that we the present then past are daylight, then the future is night. But in that darkness is a kind of mysterious, erotic, enveloping sense of possibility and mm. communion. You know, it's in, you know, love is made in the dark uh, and uh, often is not. And that with that to recognize that un- unknowability as fertile, as rich as the womb rather than the tomb in some sense. Mm. And 
you know, and so much for me of hope is not, as I was saying, not optimism that everything will be fine, but that we don't know what will happen. A guest of yours uh, last year, whose name I'm going to mispronounce, Walter Brueggemann. Yes, yes. Theologian you know, of the prophets, yeah. Yeah, we pu- we're putting out a new edition of Hope in the Dark, and I listened to his interview, and he talked about how much hope is grounded in memory, mm-hmm. and I was so excited to hear someone say that. You know, we think of hope as looking forward, but memory lets us know, if we have a real memory, that we don't, we didn't know, we didn't know the Berlin Wall was going to fall and the Soviet Union right. was going to fall apart. And the binary arrangement, those of us who are older grew up in, where it seemed like capitalism and communism and the right. Cold War standoff was going to last for centuries. You know, if you study history deeply, um, you realize that, you know, to quote Patti Smith, people have the power that popular power, civil society has been tremendously powerful and has changed the world again and again and again, that we're not powerless, that that things are very unpredictable and that people have often taken on things that seemed hopeless, freeing the slaves, getting women the vote, you know, and achieved those things. And so I think that hope has to be grounded in a, in a good sense of history that, and in that memory that, uh, that can make us hopeful. And I feel like so much of what we're burdened by is bad stories, both people who have amnesia, who don't remember that the present was constructed by certain forces to serve certain elements and can be deconstructed and, you know, that things could be very different, that they have been very different, that things are always changing and that we have agency in that change. You get both the sense that things have never changed and that we have no power to change things when people have that kind of amnesia. And... um, you know, so for me, recognizing what the environmental movement has done since the moment when Rachel Carson arrives on stage and gives us language for things we didn't even talk about, right, downwind, right. downstream, bioaccumulation, you know, all these contaminations that were, uh, weren't being recognized, uh, you know, yeah, that and language and, and stories can change the possibilities and really matter. You you also, I mean, you, you, you write that you were born in this, the summer the Berlin Wall went up, which would be 1961, and I was born in 1960, um, and, and, and spent a lot of time in, in my adulthood, in, in my young adulthood in Berlin. But, but the way you, as you say, the changes that, that, that have happened between now and then were completely unimaginable. I mean, things that happened in 1989 were, were utterly unimaginable. I mean, you know, I always point out the fact that that the president of, of West Germany was out of the country the day the Berlin Wall fell. I mean, no one knew it would happen, even when there was so much going on. And that was just one of, you know, there was, else, there was what was happening in South Africa and... And and there's Northern Ireland, like which is a place that I grew up thinking is a place where people have always killed each other and would continue to kill each other. And and you also have wonderful language about, you know, as you say, the vocabulary we we thought of ourselves in the '60s, looking at that wall in Berlin, you know, and it was it was a, a terrible, it was an a, an offense against humanity. But there was so there's there's so much vocabulary for. Um, for things that we now understand to be important that we didn't possess then, that would have been unimaginable then. As you said, the thing, the way we know how to talk about the natural world, just for starters, or about human diversity. 
Exactly. And one thing, the simp- one of the simple examples I often go back to is that when you and I were small to be uh, gay or lesbian or otherwise something other than standard heterosexual is to be considered mentally ill or criminal or both and yeah. punished accordingly. And to go from there to national you know, same-sex marriage rights is an unimaginable journey. Yeah. You know, it's so much of the science fiction of our youth was really just kind of like dudes with rocket packs on Mars. <laughs> and, uh, in, you know, you like Stranger in a Strange Land. It's totally the 60s culture with some new yeah. um, Their wives opportunities who, and who technologies. Their robots and, to have to do the housework for them, right? <laughs> yeah, but there's, you know, Mrs. Jetson is still yes. a housewife in the mode of 1960-whatever. Yes. That's right. And, you know, feminism is wilder than anybody imagine and so mm-hmm. like these you know and finding the language to talk about sexuality about spirituality and you know the tremendous influence of asian cultures yes. on the west yes the all ways new. we yeah yeah the ways to think systematically about where your garbage goes where your food and water mm-hmm. come from you know one of the challenges of climate change is we have to think systematically what goes into your gas tank goes goes out into the atmosphere mm-hmm. and shapes the climate in which all life takes place. And so when our, we have to think collectively about those decisions. So there's been just, and it's been such a huge revolution. And you have to get past the idea that the only revolution that matters is regime change, although we've had plenty of those in the last 50-something years. Yeah. You know, to look at all these revolutions in sexuality and gender, food production and ecological awareness in relationships between East and West and social possibilities and, you know, and economics and, alter, you know, just the – and there's often – so many times, and this is part of the hopelessness, people say something lost, like the 60s failed because, you know, and it's like, you know, I noticed the other day that two people working, doing really great humane solidarity work with someone on death row had been part of the wet or t- connected to the weather underground. And the weather underground mm. is not something I'm wildly enthused about. But that out of the, you know, some of those people whose idealism pushed them to that extreme are still idealists and still doing things. And they came through that opening and they never stopped doing what they're doing. And that's a lot of what my hopeful stuff is about is trying to look at the immeasurable, incalculable, indirect, roundabout way that uh, things matter. Yeah. Uh, my friend David Graeber has a wonderful passage. That's in the new version of Hope in the Dark coming out and uh, about how the Russian Revolution succeeded, but not but not really in Russia. It terrified or at least motivated leaders in Europe and North America and elsewhere to make enormous concessions to the rights of poor and workers and really, really furthered economic justice in other places. And if you can say that a revolution was successful, but not in the country it took place in, then you can start to trace these indirect impacts. And it's something, uh, you know, there's a story I tell in Hope in the Dark about... Um, God, who was it? Uh, Dr. Spock, who became a great outspoken anti-war voice during the Vietnam War. I don't think I remember was that. Asked, Dr. Spock? Yeah. yeah. Benjamin yeah, Spock? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was asked how he became, you know, this great voice for peace. 
And he talked about walking past the White House one day and seeing this little cluster of forlorn-looking ladies protesting nuclear weapons in the rain and thinking, if they can do that, then I really should stand up for what I believe in. Mm. And the story was told by one of those ladies who said, standing there in the rain, I felt like it was completely futile and a waste of my time and et cetera. You know, and, and she had um, this incredible impact. Yeah, and then yeah. and she didn't find out until maybe a decade later that actually, you know, this had been the trigger for, uh, you know, this enormously important, uh, uh, you know, force that was Benjamin Spock's voice, Mister Baby in Childcare Unleashed <laughs> Against War. I, I love and that. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, you have yeah. this you have this wonderful sentence that um, history is like the weather. Not like checkers, and do you, you talk about you know? Here's another. You know, sometimes cause and effect are centuries apart. Sometimes Martin Luther King's arc of the moral universe that bends towards justice is so long, few see its curve. Sometimes hope lies not in looking forward but backward to study the line of that arc. It's it's it's, it's an un-American way of thinking, but it's an essential way I think to inhabit this century in particular? I mean, there used to be products advertised in comic books and things, instant results guaranteed or your money back. Yeah. And I often feel that that's what people demand. And it's a, it's, if you're, if disappointment is your goal, that's a surefire recipe for it. And for example, Occupy Wall Street was pronounced a failure before it had really gotten going and was and etc. And um, you know, at one point there were occupies in New Zealand and Japan and Europe, and uh, in California alone there were about four hundred occupies at the peak in the late two thousand eleven, and they dispersed as these encampments and people in which people had these extraordinary dialogues. And the impact of those dialogues is hard to measure. But you can look at uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren as. Yeah. And the, uh, Bill de Blasio of New York, the mayor of New York, as people who are kind of carrying those frameworks into the mainstream right, right. and into electoral politics. And you can also look at both national things, the movement against uh, punitive student debt and the exploitative private colleges that my friend Astra Taylor is involved in, which is this Occupy spinoff. But also I started asking around and there's all these little groups in all these little communities working with the homeless, working for and There's Occupy human Sandy rights. as well. Exactly. Which, which was is a very practical work. response to yeah. crisis. Yeah. yeah. There's also, I mean, and just as you're talking about this, they, that, if nothing else, Occupy Wall Street also contributed some language that has continued to be incredibly powerful, e- even 1%. if people are responding to yeah. it and and arguing with it, right? It's there. I don't think anybody even, is even arguing with the term the 1%. Yeah. We don't hear about the 99% much, but we hear about the 1% all the time yeah. to talk about the super rich. And it was such the 99% and the 1% was so interesting saying it's not the poor against the middle class. It's most of us against yeah. this tiny elite that now controls most of the resources on earth in this great economic reshuffling we've undergone in the last few decades. And just making visible the amount of human suffering that mortgage debt, medical debt, student loan debt, credit card debt has imposed and this kind of debt peonage that also leads to people to be jailed and people to to have lives that are just impossible 
uh, and yeah. miserable in all kinds of ways was really revelatory. And, you know, we weren't really talking about economic inequality, economic justice. I think that the incredible campaigns around minimum wage come out of this opening too. Right, right. And that's one of these things, these movements, dialogues, moments can be as an opening. And the opening isn't the event, the opening is the space through which myriad events going forward may take place. Yeah. You know, what I feel like what you're 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 kind of you're drawing a map and it's a different kind of map than we than we came out of the 20th century in our heads with, which is and the, about how social change happens. Um, we, I think maybe the image people uh, go to in a default way is kind of, you know, maybe the civil rights movement simplified large numbers of people on the street, a charismatic leader and laws that get passed right in the, in that moment. Um, uh, I mean, so let me, let me ask you this. So, because one I very much appreciated your writing about Hurricane Katrina and and the and the world after Hurricane Katrina. And so I I would like to ask you how if you met, and this is one of these places where we've told the story in a certain way and we and even from the very beginning the story was narrated and presented in a way that was um largely just incredibly uh demoralizing. Um if you met someone you know, let's like say a Martian who, <laughs> who had was not here and had never heard of this. You know, how would you tell? Start to tell the fullness of that story of Hurricane Katrina. What happened to this city called New Orleans? That is, and how that that history is still being made now. You know, I should say that all my work on disaster draws from these wonderful disaster sociologists who had this do this incredible work documenting what happens in disasters and have since World War II. You know, I'm kind of their popularizer and, okay. you know, and, I, and um, people like uh, Kathleen Tierney and, um, but, and they, they say there's no such thing as a natural disaster, meaning that, you know, in an earthquake, it's buildings that fall on you. So like, what are the building codes? Mm. Who lives in substandard housing? Mm. Who lives on the floodplain? Who gets evacuated? who gets left behind, who, you know, and um, there was very little that was natural about Hurricane Katrina. Uh, the levees had been predicted to fail very publicly in National Geographic and the times in the New Orleans newspaper. And so the Army Corps of Engineers is the first culprit because the storm didn't do that much. It blew some roofs off. It dumped a lot of rainwater, et cetera. What happened to New Orleans is that the levees failed to, you know, about seven-eighths of the city flooded, meaning that, that you know, a lot of it was from a few feet to, you know, 15 feet or more deep in water, and just all systems failed, and some hospitals were able to run on generators. At, um, there was a, a supposedly, you know, what there was what was called a mandatory evacuation, but people who didn't have the resources to evacuate were left behind to face what happened. Yeah. So that's the setup for it that creates a disaster. You know, in Cuba, 
ev- when there's a mandatory evacuation, everybody receives this receives the assistance they need to evacuate. So <laughs> it's our kind of laissez-faire, every man for himself system that <laughs> left, you know, what were often portrayed as, you know, the criminal element. It was a lot of poor women, single moms with kids, a lot of elderly people. And a lot of the guys who got portrayed as gangsters and things were the wonderful rescuers and, uh, you know, these really able-bodied young guys who did amazing things. Mm. So so all these people, uh, New Orleans was a two-thirds black city at this point, a uh, very poor city. All these poor people, mostly black people, although there's some wealthy white people also, are, are left behind in the city. Then things happen like, they basically get sealed off. You can walk out of the central city to dry land, but the sheriff of a suburb called Gretna and his thugs get on the bridge with guns and turn people back at gunpoint. You cannot walk out of New Orleans to dry land. So you're trapped like you're a prisoner essentially. And why you know, there's all these And that was because yeah. of the narrative they were working off in terms of yeah. who these people were? Yeah, well, the, you know, all the all the cliches uh, that surfaced in the 1906 earthquake, all the crap about human nature, about how we all revert, especially poor people, especially non-white people, how we revert to our, okay. our savage social Darwinist nature were aired. And the mainstream media, and this includes the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and, you know, The Guardian, all the major news outlets, it wasn't, you know, it's uh, where the unindicted co-conspirators always say, they start publishing all this garbage about how there's mass killings in the Superdome, and that, which is believed so much that uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency sends like a gigantic tractor trailer refrigerated truck to get what turns out to be six bodies, not the 200 that are supposed to be there. Mm. There's all these stories that people are shooting at helicopters, so you can't have helicopter rescues. You know, first of all, why would people shoot at helicopters? You have to believe that people are just crazy. Right. And second not of even all, Darwinian. Like, <laughs> it's not even yeah, survival. Yeah. yeah. No, and it's just, <laughs> and second of all, it's completely untrue. Every standard of journalism is abandoned and people just publish this total garbage. And then they obsess about property. And it's like grandmothers are dying on roofs in this blazing, sweltering heat. And all people seem to care about is whether somebody's getting a TV for free from from Walmart. And it's like, mm-hmm. really, that's more important than, you know, than human life to you? And, you know, what are your priorities? And that's what the disaster sociologists call elite panic, where the elites believe that we're monsters and that the only thing that holds society together is their own power over us. And when their power fails, they're terrified. And so they mount a a campaign not to treat suffering human beings and bring them resources, but to reconquer the city. And that's, you can see in some ways, that's what happened in 9-11. It's exactly what happened with the occupying army that killed possibly as many as 500 people in San Francisco in 1906. Hmm. And that language was used about New Orleans. Uh, Kathleen Blanco, the governor of Louisiana, said, we have troops fresh from fresh from Iraq, and they have M16s that are locked and loaded, and they mm. know how to use them. Yeah. And it's like, that is not a humanitarian effort. Right. You know, M16s are not how you help that grandmother dying on the roof. And right. those grand, some of those grandmothers died. And so, you know, people were not a victim of a hurricane. They were a victim 
of vicious stories of the media's failures, of the failures of the government from the, every scale, from the city of New Orleans that left prisoners locked in flooded jails to the federal government. And, um, you know, and so that's that's political failures. But behind those politics are stories. And what's interesting is that a lot of people believe those stories. And I set out and then I recruited my friend A.C. Thompson, the investigative journalist who did amazing work. Later on, Katrina, a number of people did really good work. I feel like we have succeeded in changing the story of Katrina. Yeah. And I don't think we'll have another disaster where those things go so unexamined. Uh, those kinds of rumors and things like that. That's, I mean, you that's know, actually a lovely example that you've been part of, of, um, of you know, changing the, the story? connecting that dot between w- what you do and 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 making making a difference um, that you, you know you wouldn't have set out to make. Right. Just that. I mean, well, you know, I didn't start that way. And the mm-hmm. funny thing is, I was already writing about disaster. I had a piece on disaster that went to press at Harper's on August 29th, 2005, the day the storm hit. And I called up my editor and said, um, I'd like to make some changes now because it was clear that New Orleans was going to be tremendous. You know, it said it's too late. We went to press, but now you're above the masthead. <laughs> And uh, and it was, you know, but then I, then I felt like, oh, my God, I'm sitting on all this really important information about what happens in disasters, namely that most people are brave, altruistic, communitarian, resourceful, that people are mostly pretty great in disasters and that it's, it's, it's the, the powerful that fail. And they fail because of there's these kind of corrupt beliefs they have uh, and these beliefs about human nature. And I just felt like, okay, I have this really important information. I have to put it at the service right, of right. unpacking what's happening and give people the resources to recognize that this is a pack of destructive lies. And, you know, we often treat stories like they're very trivial, you know, like they're story hour for kids or that. But, you know, people live and die by stories. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and people died of vicious stories in New Orleans. And everybody could have been evacuated in 24 hours. Everybody could have been evacuated beforehand. Well, Uh, the stories you you also tell are that, you know, that we don't hear, which were life-giving, you know, that in the immediate aftermath, more than 200,000 people invite displaced strangers into their homes through hurricanehousing.org, which I never heard about, that that the that the massive number of people who went to New Orleans went to the Gulf Coast to help rebuild that was like it was like the Freedom Summer in Mississippi magnified a thousandfold. Um, so there's also that that taking place and those lives one at a time. And there was tre- from the very minute it all began, there was tremendous altruism. And the first round of rescuers were people who were themselves inside the city who got boats. Or did other things to rescue people who came together in uh, buildings that weren't damaged and formed little communities and took care of the vulnerable. But there are these extraordinary stories and people really, that impulse to help is so powerful. And they talk, yeah. they call it disaster convergence. And it often becomes a problem where you have, so, you remember after 9-11, people lined up around the right. block all over the country help? to give blood. Yeah. People really want to help. And that's that's who we are. 
And, uh, you know, New Orleans for years afterwards had all these people, church groups, and I saw amazing Mennonite builders rebuilding houses and Habitat for Humanity. And I kind of loved it. It was the whole spectrum from Catholic charities to the Mennonites to pretty radical anarchists and uh, people working with Common Ground, which was in some ways grounded in the Black Panthers yeah, because yeah. the uh, former Black Panthers were a big part of it. And there was some really immediate stuff, guiding houses and running community kitchens for people who didn't have kitchens in these de devastated houses who were coming back. There was advocacy. And some of it's still there. Common Ground was founded by Black Panthers and young white supporters and became a project that did a lot of different things. And not all of it worked out perfectly, but some of it was amazing. And it became a, really a part of the conversation. But they founded the first really good clinic um, for people who needed emergency care, who needed their their diabetes medicine or their tetanus shot or their wound disinfected. And, um, and that split off into Common Ground Clinic, which is still going strong more than 10 years later. And that's the yeah. kind of indirect consequences, you know, and I... I that I find so interesting to trace is that in this city, in this country where people are often so di so lacking in access to medical care, here's something that came out of Katrina that's still right, helping people right. every day. Right. So, I w you know, we talked a little while ago about about love and and you know your your idea that love has so so many other things to do in the world aside from these silos of you know loving our families and loving and and loving our children um so if i ask you just what story or people come to mind if if you think about the word love as a practical muscular public thing um in in uh new orleans 10 years after hurricane katrina like what what comes to mind for you and so many things. And it's a really magical place. Like, you know, it's, I confronted uh, racism in a way I never had before, looking at people who were murdered just for being black um, after the storm. But there's also a lot of joy, a lot of, a lot, and people, people have deep connections in New Orleans. I w would try to explain that people in New Orleans and Katrina lost things that most of us hadn't had for generations. A lot of people lived in a neighborhood where they knew hundreds of people. They knew everybody who lived near them. They might have extended family. They might be like Fats Domino, who was born in a house in the Lower Ninth Ward, delivered by his by his grandmother, you know, people live in their grandparents' houses. They have these deep roots and wide branches, and they engage in public celebration. They talk to strangers, and, you know, they. it's a deeply Dionysian place, and with the second line parades all, you know, 40-something yeah. Sundays a year, not just Carnival, uh, not just Mardi Gras. And um, it's, a, it's a profoundly spiritual place. So all these things are part of the place. And, um, you know, so they were already really rich. But a lot of people after Katrina felt like, okay, we really have to engage to keep this place alive. And there was a real rise in civic engagement, you know, and a number of institutions around uh, justice and policing were reformed. The police were actually taken over by the federal government because it was the most corrupt and incompetent police department in the United States. They got a semi-decent mayor for a change after a lot of corruption, particularly from Ray Nagin, who went to jail for it, the mayor during and after Katrina. 
And people really started to dream big about, okay, here we are on the fastest eroding coastline in the world, in a city that's partly below sea level, in an era of climate change, increasing storms and rising waters. How do we adapt? And people are having this really exciting conversation about rethinking the city and how water works in the city, yeah. um, building systems of survival. And there's a, there's a there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. And I think if Katrina hadn't happened, and again, this is like all disasters, like the storm was horrible. It killed about 1,800 people. It displaced a lot of black people who were never able to come back mm-hmm. and impacted the continuity and mental health um, of the community. But it did create this engagement that is, you know, one of the, that, and this really creative planning of the future. And New Orleans might have just continued its gentle decline without Katrina. Right, and it's, it's kind and of an incubator so, now, isn't it? Kind of a... Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the young people, these young idealists who moved there, you know, fell in love with the place and stayed. And it's complicated. Some of them are the white kids who are gentrifying traditionally black neighborhoods. Mm. But they're also some... They're not all white, and there are people who are bringing a passion for urban planning, community gardens, um, you know, for thinking about these social and ecological systems. And the place is very energized right now in new ways, and it has retained uh, quite a lot, if not all, of the energy it had before. You know, and it seems to me that that New Orleans, that story of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina becomes just an extreme example of of a larger reality you see and so here's here's something you wrote that you know it's so beautifully stated you know that, that in fact every, each one of us individually if we if we stop to take it apart has a story of a million events or actions or people without which we would not be and you wrote you know trace it far enough and this very moment in your life becomes a rare species, the result of a strange evolution, a butterfly that should already be extinct and survives by the inexplicabilities we call coincidence. (laughs) Yeah, from far away nearby where I trace the boy dying of leukemia who bought a copy of my book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, who gave it to give to his dear friend, who gave it to her mother who invited me to Iceland at an opportune moment when getting the hell out of where I was was just what I wanted and needed to do. (laughs) And so it's this chance encounter of a boy who died before I got there with a book table in Berlin that makes me, brings me to small town Iceland. You know, I love those kinds of stories because it's also about the unpredictability of our lives. And that ground for hope I talk about, that we don't know what forces are at work, what's, who and what is going to appear, what thing we may not have even noticed or may have discounted that will become a tremendous force in our lives. And that, I th- you know, people in this culture love certainty so much, and they seem to love certainty more than hope, and so, which is why they often seize on these really kind of bitter, despondent narratives that are they know exactly what's going to happen you know, that the the tar sand pipeline is going to pass. And, you know, there's no way that all this rabble of activists in places like Nebraska are going to stop this tremendously powerful fossil fuel pipeline, you know, and upend the oil industry. And, um, 
You know, and that certainty just seems so tragic to me. And, and of course, we did stop the tar sands pipeline. Obama on November 6th, I think it was, finally said no to it because for six years people, even when it was thought to be a lost cause and ridiculous and unlikely, kept pushing. So, yeah, so tracing those things and those coalitions that came together, the Cowboy and Indian Coalition, mm. these wonderful really roles Native uh, Canadians, First Nations Canadians have played in the movement against the tar sands pipelines. You know, you get these, I want people to tell more complex stories and to acknowledge these players who aren't in the limelight. Because it's also acknowledging that all the power is not in the hands of the people you're going to see on the nightly news. It's not in the hands of elected officials it's not in the hands of it's not all in the hands of corporations that slimes we win and that there are these openings but an opening is just an opening you have to go through it and make make something happen right. and you know and it you don't always win but you know but if you you know but if you try you don't always lose yeah you don't always win but i i think I, you know i come back to your idea that history is like and in fact our lives are like the weather not like checkers so so your point, which actually is, um, I would see, say, is the kind of complexity that I think theology at its best imposes, you know, that you walk through the openings and perhaps you don't win that battle or you don't see the result you hoped for. You know, perhaps you, you outright lose, but, but the way, the, the complex way you're wanting to tell the stories of reality and of our lives is that whatever we do there there are always consequences that that we that we that we don't control and can't see and can't calculate but but they matter they 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 count the guy i'm involved with loves to say and i'm getting the, it's from foucault and i'm getting it wrong that that we know what we do we know why we do it but we don't know what it does what mm. we don't know what we do does and I love that sense that um, you know there are these things you know we don't we don't know consequences you mm. know we can sur- we can learn and surmise and a lot of what matters is indirect and nonlinear. It's funny I'm writing something uh, it's related and it's like even checker seems too sophisticated and complex for the metaphor. I use bowling where people are like <laughs> right. either we knocked all all the pins down with this bowl. This bowling ball, you know, or we had a gutter ball and nothing happened. And it's like, you know, yeah, even to stick with the horrible bowling metaphor. Yeah, we flip a coin almost. It's like we only have two outcomes, right? (laughs) Yeah, but it's like maybe some of those pins are going to, you know, if you want to talk about how history works, it's like maybe some of those pins are going to slowly disintegrate. And some, and, you know, and of course, you know, the powers that be are never going to give you credit for why the pins, you know, pins disintegrated fell. Maybe you're actually knocking over pins in somebody else's lane, you know, like, you know, it's just not that, it's just not that linear. Yeah. But people really have this bowling mentality where it's like either we, you know, either it was a strike or a gutter ball and it's yeah. like, you know. And whatever you can you count, know, it, like you can count how many pins went down and it's that number that matters, right? Yeah. Yeah. My uh, wonderful environmentalist friend Chip Ward 
likes to talk about the tyranny of the quantifiable. Yeah. And I've been using that phrase of his for about 15 years. And it is a kind of tyranny. And I, I think, and it does get mystical where you have to look at what's not quantifiable. Yeah. Martin Luther King is assassinated in 1968, a comic book um, t- that about how civil disobedience works that was distributed during the civil rights movement gets translated into Arabic and distributed in Egypt and becomes one of the, you know, immeasurable forces that help feed the Arab Spring, which is five years old right now. And most of it doesn't look that good, but they did overthrow a bunch of regimes. And the French Revolution didn't really look very good five years out, I was saying oh, the other I know. day. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, it's so important that you point that out. That we, and also our revolution. I mean, these, these things are messy and they take generations. Yeah. And we forget that. And we're already like calling it as a loss. And it's absurd, really. It's absurd. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that. There are really good good points to be made that, for example, that, that overthrowing a dictator is nice, but you need democratic institutions. Mm-hmm. In Egypt, for example, the, the military was a power that didn't go away. And, uh, you know, that, that you need to not just have that amazing moment in the streets and that rupture, but you need to change, you know, have an ongoing engagement with transforming the system and making it accountable and et cetera. But, you know, but what happened mattered nevertheless. And I think for people, many people in the Middle East, just this sense that, you know, it's not inevitable that we live in, you know, authoritarianism. We are not powerless, that we have had power. And just those experiences. And so yeah. often you talk to people and... um you know, who had those experiences in Prague in 1968 and all kinds of moments. Yeah, which that then looked like a loss them. as well in, in, the, yeah, in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think of Alexander Dubček, um, you know, the hero of uh, the Prague Spring of 1968, which was quashed, playing yeah. a role in the 1989 revolution yes. that liberated that country. It's so true, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, you know, so yeah, so I want, you know, I want better metaphors. I want better stories. I want more openness. I want better questions. You know, all these things feel like they give us tools that are a little more commensurate with the amazing possibilities and the terrible realities that we face. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that what we get given so often are just these kind of clumsy, inadequate tools. They they don't help. They don't open things up. They don't shed light. They don't lead us to interesting places. They don't let us know how powerful we can be. They don't help us ask the questions that really matter. And that start with rejecting the narratives we're told and and telling our own stories, becoming the storyteller rather than the person who's told what to do. Mm. Um, This is so wonderful. I thank you. I, I, um, I'm very much kind of a comrade in your, um, your, your reverence for something called public life and, um, you know, you, it, which I think we've narrowly equated with political life in recent generations, but kind of opening that language up more. 
you've said you know public life enlarges you, gives you purpose and context. Um, I I want to come to this you know this idea that uh, <laughs> let's see, maybe this is um, this analogy is more apt than I think. I mean we're in the middle of this uh, this presidential election year, which is so uh, confusing, messy, um, but and there's a lot of anger in the room and. Um, where am I going with this? You know, you you. T- I don't want to compare it to a natural disaster, but you know, you said, and <laughs> I think I am in my mind. You're, but I'll go do right. it. <laughs> but you said, like, like in the middle of a natural disaster, there's this joy that rises up. So, so on the one hand, we have this spectacle of. I think. A, uh, let's just say. I think I can safely say this. You know, a presidential election is, which is not what any of us, how any of us would want it to be. Um. Perhaps, um, but but tell me, where are you taking joy in public life right now? And that that might have nothing to do with politics. I, yeah, I totally agree. We need a broader sense of public life that it's a sense of belonging to a place. By which I mean the physical place, the trees, the birds, the weather, yeah. the coastline or the, the hills or <laughs> the, far, the farms, as well as the people and yeah. the institutions, et cetera. And it's one of the reasons I love New Orleans. People really engage with each other just in every day. And uh, where sometimes living in the Bay Area, it feels like when I'm in a zombie movie, everybody's walking around in a trance staring at their phone and nobody's, <laughs> you know, in the private world your phone opens onto. And, um, and um, but it's funny the way you describe it, because I think there's a kind of self-forgetfulness and a sense of having something in common that brings that joy when it comes in disaster. And of course, the presidential election is the exact opposite. It's partisanship and this sort of deep attachment to I'm right and you're wrong and this squabbling. And it's an amazing election. I feel like I'm in Argentina or Italy because we basically, (laughs) it looks like we might have a socialist running against a fascist. (laughs) And it's like this really broad spectrum. You know, we've basically had centrists most of the last, you know, we've had some really interesting third-party candidates like Henry Wallace, the socialist who did really well in 48. But um, but mostly we've had people who are pretty centrist, you know, George Bush the first and yeah. et cetera. And Reagan was, Reagan was radical and started to dismantle all the safety nets that from FDR, et cetera. Right, but, but he still, looks really centrist the, from here. Yeah, but still there was a kind of a common ground. And now you have these crazy climate denying, uh, um, you know, reproductive rights denying, kind of, you know, our own jihadi fanatics, our own Sharia law law, uh, dudes, you know. And then we have like this Jewish guy from Brooklyn who's like a Vermont socialist. And it's and just the breadth is kind of... You know, it's very scary. It's really interesting. But it's also sad because I feel like it's like Obama 2008 all over again. A lot of people I know are invested in Sanders in a way where, like, here's the magic savior who will make everything beautiful. And the Obama uh, presidency feels like such a lost opportunity to me. If the tremendously powerful grassroots movement Mm -hmm. that overcame greater money etc and put him in office had not gone home and left this one guy one not so experienced guy who had the whole wrath of 
you know, the Republican Party uh, against him. You know, if that movement had remained effective and powerful and, you know, not in just having his back, but in pushing him and demanding things about climate, things about Guantanamo, things about economic justice, et cetera, like, you know, that civil society could have worked miracles and it could have redefined the center so that we'd be having a very different conversation now than one in which immigrants continue to be blamed for everything, in which uh, reproductive rights are framed. Yeah, well, there's you know, so much when, fear, which... Right, which some of, some of it has roots in circumstances that are near, and I think some of it's just been building and is a function of this moment we inhabit writ large, and it's all. But 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 to you know we're so so put that aside because I think that's not very joyful for you or me. But where where are you where are you finding joy in public life right now? Like where do you want to look in terms of the larger narrative of like who we are and what we're capable of and what this moment you often talk about. You say, whenever I look around me, I wonder what old things are about to bear fruit, what seemingly solid institutions might soon rupture, and what seeds we might now be planting whose harvest will come at some unpredictable moment in the future. So where where are you looking right now with intrigue? You know, the climate movement, which was this kind of embryonic and effectual thing 10 years ago, And I was in Paris for the climate conference, and Mm. it's global, it's powerful, it's brilliant, it's innovative, and like remarkable things are happening, and real, real transformations. And you know, ten years ago, we we didn't even have the energy options. You know, we didn't really have good alternatives to fossil fuel the way we do now, as like Scotland heads towards a hundred percent fossil-free energy generation. Generation yeah, yeah. as all these remarkable things happen, so we're really in an energy revolution. That's an evolution of a revolution of consciousness about how things work and how connected they all are. And um, you know this incredible kind of war of the world against the fossil fuel corpora- corporations. It's very effective. But that's that's the pragmatic side. What I also see is these deep connections between people in North America and Africa, and the Pacific, the Philippines, Asia, you know, this global movement that's really coming of age. And that has a kind of profound beauty, not in only some of the individuals I'm friends with who are doing great things in it, but a kind of beauty of creativity, of passion, of real love for the vulnerable populations at stake, Mm, for mm -hmm. the world, the natural world, for the sense of systems and order, uh, the natural order of weather, the weather patterns, sea levels, uh, uh, things like winter. And, Mm. um, you know, so it's really... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Winter as it used, winter and spring as it used to be, where the bird migrations right. happened, right. you know, in coordination with these flowers blooming and these insects hatching, etc. You know, and what we what we recognize when we address climate change is this inf- this infinite complexity that has a beautiful kind of order to it, and that's falling mm. into. Disorder and so I, the the love, the intelligence, the passion, the creativity of that movement is one. And there's many other things I could say, but right now that's just so exciting mm. 
And it's also terrifying because that's facing the most scary thing on earth, which is the, you know, catastrophic climate change. Yeah, the disaster and, to end all disasters that takes your... And it's negotiating. Yeah, yeah it's negotiating. Yeah. And this is what mm-hmm. hope is about for me. It's not saying like, oh, we can pretend that, that everything's going to be fine and we'll fix it all and it'll be as though it never happened. It's really saying like the difference between the best case scenario and the worst case scenario is where these people in the Philippines survive, where these people in the Arctic are able to keep something of their way of life. And we're going to do everything we can to fight for the best case rather than the worst case yeah. without 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 illusions, without thinking that we're going to make it all magically okay and like it never happened. You mm. know, and so that tough-mindedness is also really beautiful, that pragmatic idealism. That tough-minded I, hope. Exactly. Give it that and the word. hope is tough. It's yeah. tougher to be uncertain than certain. It's tougher to take chances than to be safe. And, uh, mm. you know, and so hope is often seen as weakness because it's vulnerable, but it takes strength to enter into that vulnerability of being open to the possibilities. Mm. And I'm interested in what gives people that strength and, you know, what stories, what questions, what memories, what conversations, what senses of themselves and the world around them. Mm. We're, we've run over, well, we're just over about a minute. I just want to ask you one last question. Um, okay. Just, it's a huge question, but just, just where would you start thinking about this? Like, how has your sense of what it means, how is your sense of what it means to be human um, evolving right now as you write and as we speak? Like, what, what contours is that taking on that perhaps you wouldn't have expected 10 years ago or, or when you were 15 and miserable? yeah and it's been so incremental and it's you know the changes seeing you know I feel like I've been able to change myself a lot to unlearn a lot of the bad frameworks bad habits about who I am and what I deserve and what my life can be like at um you know I was a really isolated kid and my brothers teased me when I did girl things, so I wasn't very good at girl things, so I wasn't very good at connecting to other girls, and I was just the weird kid with her nose in a book and stuff. I have a like I have really wonderful people around me and really deep connections, and that's incredibly satisfying. And just like, you know, it's all kind of amazing. You w- I think a lot of us wish you could send postcards to your miserable teenage self. <laughs> I always thought that it gets better campaign for queer kids. Like we need it for, you know, should be broadened because it gets better for a lot of us that, you know, and a a lot of ugly ducklings become swans. A lot of unpopular people end up being loved, you know, that, that, you know, just that you build a life and the facts. And also I was, I'm part of that pathetic childhood was being really voiceless about some of the bad things that were happening to me, but also just not having people to talk to and et cetera, and becoming a voice that's translated into many languages that's on the radio, that writes editorials in major newspapers. Like that's all kind of shocking to me. Like nobody, I, my mother in her ever unencouraging way, when I won some big prize said, this is all such a surprise. You were just a mousy little thing. (laughs) But it is kind of a surprise. And it's, you know, and it's like I've been to have this ability to participate and, you know, and really kind of 
maybe be helpful to other people to do really meaningful work in how we think about gender and feminism, how we tell our stories, how we, you know, including stories about climate, about popular power, about disaster, about human nature. You know, it's such a gift. And I, you know, I was always going to be a writer, but I thought I was going to scribble on the side and have a day job. And <laughs> I haven't gotten around to replacing my last day job, which was in 1988. Mm. And so, you know, so so it's all just this kind of astonishment. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, I just can't tell you how much I've. This has been such a pleasure, and I'm. I, I just love your writing, and I've followed you for such a long time, and it's a real thrill to have you, um, to be in conversation with you. So, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's great to talk to somebody who has such great questions and goes in such, goes so far in such interesting directions. Well, I'm, I look forward to sharing this with others, and yeah. So, just thank you so much for making the time, and I hope we'll meet in person one day somewhere. If you ever come out here, let me know. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. And where yeah. are you? Are you at, where We're are you in Minnesota. Minnesota. If you ever come here, please be in touch. Come to our studio. It's been known to happen. Are you in, uh, what town are you in? In Minneapolis. Milwaukee? Yeah. Near, oh, right. In Minneapolis. What yeah, am I? Near Sorry. Loring Park. I near, was hearing Minnesota for a minute. Yes. Yeah. So we have a great, but, uh, we have a beautiful studio and it would just be wonderful to take you to lunch. Okay. Okay. That could, I'm, I'm trying to think, am I going to Min- where I'm, go- I have these schedules where, like, the week before, I really figure out what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm no, I'm sure you'll go, come here. And then I'm going, yes. going onward, and I'm thinking, like, is that yeah. where I'm going? I'll let you know. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye.